Okay, we are rolling. So, um, it's so nice to have everyone here with the Horse Spur Podcast. And we have Shannon Kerr here. Did I say that wrong? No, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we have Shannon Kerr here. And Nancy, I don't know how to say your <laughs> last name. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. I won't be mad. It's okay. Okay. Is it Leishner? It's Leishner. Leishner. Okay, good. And then Riley McKenzie. I got that one. Got that one. Yeah. <laughs> I call Leishner all the time, too. That's, yeah, that's I, I what I thought it was. I also thought it was Leishner until I was, like, getting married. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I thought maybe we'd start with just a background with all of you, where you started with your riding and where you're at now, and then we can start with the questions. Okay, so I started riding when I was a little kid, and then I went to the amateur rodeos and then to the pro rodeos and qualified for the Canadian finals. And then I rodeoed down south and went to a bunch of big rodeos, Houston, San Antonio, the, the whole tour. And then, um, then I started riding for charity horses, and that's kind of what I'm doing right now. Is that good? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I started riding also when I was very young. I grew up on a big, big ranch, 77,000 acres. And so I rode just ranch horse when I was little, little. And then I started eventing and I did 4-H and I showed a bunch. And I kind of never really had great horses. So I just always worked for other trainers and whatnot. And then, I don't know, I guess probably 12 years ago, I started barrel racing. I took a three-year hiatus when I had my kid and bought my second barrel horse, and that's the one I'm on now. So that's where we're at. Where was the ranch? South of Many Berries. Cool. Well, I grew up with a family that wanted me to play golf. (laughs) But uh, when I could drive, I drove to a a racetrack by my house and walked in the barn and asked if I could ride horses. And so I started out exercising racehorses. Nice. And then went into some jumping and dressage. And then had a boyfriend that was a saddle bronc rider. And that's how I got into barrel racing. And then somehow I became a professional barrel racer. And here I am today. Okay. So, yeah, we can open it up to any questions. Does anyone have anything they'd want to ask? <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> On oh, my goodness. Yes. Maybe I'll just repeat kind of the question. So, yeah, we just had a question about farriers and what they're like in Brazil because the vets are fewer and farther between the the good ones. So Shannon will answer that. Well, you know, my husband was a farrier in North Texas. He was a Brazilian that went to Texas with $300 in his pocket, became a shoer, became one of the best. He shod 32 world champions, including Shining Spark and... I don't know, Doc's Hickory, Doc's Doc's Quixote. He shot many, many famous horses. But when we moved to Brazil, he didn't want to shoe anymore. So I actually have to pay a guy to do it. The shoeing is really difficult because we don't really have any good shoers. So a lot of times I try to leave my horses barefoot as long as possible, especially the young horses, because I believe as they grow, I kind of feel like the shoe kind of inhibits them to be a little more natural. It's really, really hard to find a shoer. I have one now. His name is Christian. He's, I wouldn't say he's a great shoer, but he leaves the horses very natural. He doesn't mess them up. So what I try to do is a lot of times I shoe the fronts and not the backs. That way there's less chance of kicking other horses and things like that. But 
um, <clears throat> it's a problem. It's a problem in Brazil. However, I think the shoers there, because they're kind of simple people with not a lot of education, they tend to just leave the horse pretty natural. So I don't see a lot of people with feet issues, like I've heard here in Canada and the United States, about people telling me stories how a farrier actually messed up their horse. You don't see that happen too much in Brazil. Farriers there are also pretty reasonably priced. For example, I pay 150 Brazilian dollars to shoe a horse all the way around. So in Canadian, in American dollars, that is thirty dollars, thirty U.S. dollars. So twenty-five Canadian to shoe my horse. So I can't complain. But it is a problem. There aren't very many educated shoers in Brazil. A lot of them are simple guys that picked it up. We have the same issues you do. We cannot sometimes depend on a farrier to show up. They tend to cater more to the bigger barns. A lot of times, <clears throat> a lot of the big trainers and people actually shoe their horses at the races because the shoer will set up at the race and you can go get your shoe put on and do things like that. But it's not quite the issue like I've seen here. I mean, maybe the other girls can elaborate on that, but I've heard so many horror stories of how the shoer messed up your horse, and I've almost never heard anything like that in, uh, in Brazil. That's very lucky. <laughs> I know, right? We, we're fortunate to have some really great ones, but there's also some pretty mediocre ones. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm supposed to my two cents. Um, <laughs> so, um, because there's there is terrible things that happen, like with farriers in in Canada, and I think it happens in the U.S. as well. I um, I actually spent like. A couple nights with Sherry Serby's barrier, and uh, it, that was when he was shooing Stingray and Dylan and in a lot of horses that were going to the NFR. And he taught me how to balance like a foot, and I don't really know how to do anything corrective. But I shoe my my competition horse, and then I'll shoe like one of my customer horses, but that's it. And um, I find like just what, and I mean, it's nothing, I can't do anything fancy, but I can control it because if I pull a shoe, I'm able to put it back on. And, um, I haven't had a lot of like, I don't have a lot of injections I find because I have a really balanced foot and, um, and I don't pull a lot of shoes, which is also kind of nice. So Good. do you think maybe because like in Brazil, we don't have a lot of rock. Even yeah. though Brazil is a big country and it's very diverse, we do have different kinds of arenas. But what I find is most of the time I need my shoes for the concrete that's around the facility, not mm -hmm. necessarily to ride my horses every day or to run in the arenas. There's just a couple of facilities where there's some concrete, the asphalt that kind of eats their feet. But maybe here where well, you guys have a lot more rock, I've noticed. Maybe that's why. I, I think we have a lot more rock and we have a lot more diversified climate so we get in the winter the horse's feet are frozen from the cold and then and then it gets um really wet when all the snow melts so their feet actually get soft so then when you add the rock into it it's like extra sensitive wow and i never would have thought of that because like in in brazil in our winter which we're in winter right now it gets dry it's our dry season so i actually find i have to put shoes on more in the dry season so they just don't crack off yeah and the rest of the year, I can really go without. And I will say that in Brazil, the vets we do have, which they are far and few between, but the ones we do have are really top notch. 
And they're very communicative with the farriers mm -hmm. and they'll explain and the farriers are very willing to listen to the vet. Yeah. Where sometimes when I was in the States, I noticed like maybe the farrier would get offensive if the vet called him or vice versa. Whereas yeah. in Brazil, it's, it's really a working relationship. Yeah. And, and we're a lot like that too. Like when we go down to the States because they have a vet in every aisle, you can get x-rays really quick. So we always do like an x-ray just to make sure the angles are good and everything's good. And then kind of checks back and and the vets i find the vets in texas are really good about just telling you like hey you're like a degree out or two degrees out and it's just a really quick easy fix oh, that's cool. mm -hmm. nancy yeah <laughs> no i uh i would have agree with what riley had to say about like our our climate having such an effect on it we've actually i think probably the season I struggle most in would be like second or first first spring like <laughs> <laughs> like that yeah. that period in January where it'll warm up and oh, yeah. it gets really muddy and their feet get soft and yeah. then it freezes at night and they step on hard spots and you end up with abscesses and sore feet and like yeah I have that I like lot. keeping my horses barefoot Yeah, yeah. This mm -hmm. the struggle is so real with the the wet and then the cold and frozen and hard lumps and oh my goodness mm -hmm. that yeah. I could be barefoot the rest of the year but that period right there it, yeah mm -hmm. and and I am a lot like Shannon like I try to leave the colts barefoot especially yeah. through the winter when it's like cold cold because you're in an indoor or whatever you have a little bit more controlled environment for as long as they can go. I agree completely. So much, so much handier, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, but even like me growing up in Oklahoma, we, we didn't deal with that severity of cold. Mm -hmm. Like I never thought about, oh my God, my horse's foot is frozen. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then again, I asked myself, why do you girls suffer so? Like Canada is amazing, but that is, that is a real challenge. Yeah. That, is a, that is a really big challenge. I would think like if someone wanted to be a farrier and really focused on that, they could really make big money. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't think my, I don't think my farrier would like me to say that he's getting rich off me, but, <laughs> but he definitely, he's definitely doing okay. Yeah. But he's worth every penny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mine too. <laughs> You don't think about your horse's feet freezing. Like I, I'm sitting here imagining my barn in Brazil. And you know what's interesting on another topic of climate? We don't have a lot of flies in Brazil. Mm -hmm. You know, we manufacture fly boots. Nobody in Brazil buys them. <laughs> and then I, I came to the States last year. We come here and the flies are terrible. Yeah. Like you would think that the, the cold weather would kill them off. <laughs> and I don't think we have a lot of flies because of all the birds. I think they eat them. No, and they bite. Yeah. They bite, yeah. Well, and that, that's, that's another thing, though, is, like, the struggle in the summertime is the flies get biting or whatever, and the horses are kicking, and, and that's hard on their feet, is stomping them on the ground, trying to bang the Well, even, even where we, when we manufacture the fly boots, my, the guys there in the factory are like, what are these for? And I try to explain, and they're like, oh, they think we're crazy. They think Americans are crazy. Like, well, I can't believe you're putting something on their legs for flies. <laughs> Because even though we are a tropical country, really the actual flies aren't that bad. You should see the banana. No. 
Okay, any other questions? Yeah. Oh. Shannon, what's your feeding program like? Well, what I think would be a better question is how do feeding programs vary between Brazil, the United States, and maybe Canada? First of all, in Brazil, anything that's made like the supplements, like we talked about the Organic supplements, but even our feed companies have to follow really strict guidelines. And they have to use really high quality ingredients in order to be a commercial feed. But the level of nutrition and the quality of our complete feeds, our commercial feeds, is extremely high. You know, the horses in Brazil versus the horses in North America is that it's such a professionalized industry. It's very much like a professional football team or hockey team. It's on that kind of level. So they have the best nutrition. They have nutritionists. So the level of nutrition is very high so that those horses are like the top athletes. But what we feed is a typical complete feed. A lot of us give um, alfalfa and grass hay. Our grass hays are not very good. You may not know this, but Brazil does not have a native grass. It was all trees. And as it got knocked down, they needed grasses, so they brought the grasses from Africa. So in Brazil, you have two types of grasses. You have grass for cattle and grass for horses. The grass for cattle is what's called brachiata, and it's great for cattle. The cattle really gain on it. It's very hardy. It can be stepped on. It goes all year round. The problem is if a horse eats it, one, it will cut the sides of their mouth, and two, it inhibits calcium absorption. So you'll start to see horses with bone growths on their faces, on their, all over their bodies, on their legs. So even on our property, we have pasture for cattle and pasture for horses. And what my husband planted is a, a chieftain type of grass. But again, Brazil doesn't have a native grass. So <clears throat> I prefer to give alfalfa. And then a lot, about six months out of the year, we actually go through the pasture and cut the grass, like with a weed eater, and the guys put it on a trailer, and they drive through the barn, and the horses eat fresh cut grass to try to save on cost. So our horses eat a lot of grass, alfalfa, hay. I don't supplement too much, but the, the supplements in Brazil are highly controlled by the government. They are on the same level as human medicines. So the factories there are controlled by the Department of Agriculture as well as the Department of like Medicines. I'm not sure what it would be called in, in Canadian. But if a product doesn't work in Brazil, if a feed doesn't work, or in this case a supplement, it has to be proven to work in order to be sold. So what do they do? For example, we, we have the Organac products. Why do I like them so much? The, the government comes in and say Organact has a product or any supplement in Brazil. The government takes that product and gives it to the state university. The university runs a research study on it. After that research study is completed, then only can that product be sold to the public. So in order for supplements to be sold in Brazil, they have to be proven that they work and they have to use the same ingredients that would be used for human consumption. They're not allowed to use second grade products. So I feel like one reason you see the success that we have with our horses and the way our horses grow, one is we don't have the cold weather you do. So I was telling Stephanie, like our two-year-olds look like your four-year-olds. And I truly believe that's the weather. You know, because our horses don't have to burn calories to stay warm and their feet don't freeze. <laughs> so I'm sorry, that was, that was kind of a long topic. I mean, yeah. try to explain. At my house, I feed a complete feed by a company called Guabi. 
They have um, different lines. You know, they have a little bit cheaper all the way up to the most expensive. I do buy the most expensive feed because I look at what my cost per day is. A lot of times you'll look at a sack of feed and you'll say, oh my gosh, it's, you know, $50. I don't know what feed costs here. I'm just assuming. Let's, oh my God, it's $100. But if you buy a lesser quality of feed, sometimes you have to feed double. So sometimes that $50 feed actually costs you more than the $100 feed in the long run. Mm -hmm. If you look at your cost per day, because I'm very careful about what my cost per day per horse is. And I'm always trying to, to keep that cost down, but with a high quality. So um, there, you guys are going to hate me. They bring your hay and stack it for you. And they bring your feed. The company sends the feed on a truck and stacks it for you in your barn. Oh, my gosh. In the wintertime, I don't mind stacking hay. But in the summertime, <laughs> I hate you for that so much. <laughs> They do. I'm, I'm so appalled still by that because when I lived in Oklahoma, I had to go get my own hay and I have to go to the feed store and get my own feed. Oh, yeah. And in Brazil, they send the truck and the truck always comes with guys that unload it and stack it in your barn. <laughs> Sweaty, stinky guys. But, but what about Canada? Like, what is yours? Okay, well, when I, when I look at it, because I have to run this as a business, because I've been a professional horse person for a long time, I didn't have any other income coming in. So I'm very careful what my cost per day is. I'm very calculated with that. So in Brazilian currency, it cost me about 1,300 Brazilian dollars per month to keep my horse there. So if you did that by 30, what is it by 30? $40 a day? 1300 divided by, come on, Kenny. 1300 divided by 30. So 50, it cost me $50 a day, 50 Brazilian dollars a day to feed a horse, to keep it there in the conditions that I keep it. That includes uh, feed and hay or alfalfa. It also includes my employer, my shavings, my electricity, and my water. Because a lot of times people don't look at that. They just look at the feed and hay costs. You forget about the shavings. You forget about your electricity. In my case, I have a worker. You know, so you have to include all that. So it costs me about 1300 a month to keep one horse. So if you have eight horses in the barn, you're looking at 10000 a month. And, and what's that in like America? In American, uh, that would be $2,000. Like if I have 10000 a month in the barn because I have eight horses. But, um, but what you have to understand is you have the exchange rate, but in my life, like where I live, 1300 Brazilian a month is like you paying 1300 Canadian a month to keep a horse. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's expensive. I, uh, I don't think any Canadian wants to include the electricity into their bill. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> now add heating onto that chair. Yeah. <laughs> I have no words. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have to worry about heating. <laughs> but what gets me is labor. Labor is very expensive in Brazil. Now, if you do the exchange rate, it's not. You'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's cheap. But we pay a lot of taxes on top of that, on top of that. But it would be like you paying 1300 Canadian or 1300 American dollars a month to keep a horse. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Just because your exchange rate makes it seem like less doesn't mean that 
that money isn't still what you have to earn, right? Like Yeah, like um, on average, I spend around 22000 a month between just feed and hay at my house. It's a lot. Now, in American, that's not so bad. That's like $4,000 a month. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still, not, that's still a lot of money. But I have like 22 head, so it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. No, totally. And what about Canada? What do you guys do for feeding? Um, we feed alfalfa and then on orchard grass also. But our, our feed regulations in Canada are somewhere in between, like, I would say they're, like, in the middle of Brazil and the U.S. Like, the U.S. makes, like, a lot of feeds, and it goes through pretty quickly without a lot of regulation. But um, Canada goes through, you have to, it has to go through a trial testing for seven years before you're, it's allowed to be uh, sold on the market, um, unless it's herbal. I believe is what the thing is. But um, the other thing with Canada that I personally don't like is that everything is, what do you call that, Nancy? Like the little pebbles? Like concentrated or? Con- like, oh. ex- yeah. yeah, like I think the, I think they call it like ex- extrude- extruded. Extruded. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it's all like that. In, in none of our facilities are, primarily horse facilities so they'll make pig feed and cow feed and chicken feed and horse feed and so sometimes when you when you get horse feed and it's gone through the plant it's not all horse feed yeah and and so it's really hard to get a consistency with our feed and I prefer um because I just travel in Canada in the U.S. I don't I don't know anywhere outside of there but um just travel on this <laughs> continent um but <laughs> the u.s i really like that they have in their complete feeds it's actual oats in there and it's actual pieces of corn in there and so you kind of have um a more you're closer to the source when you buy their complete feeds. so i always try to like grab some when i'm there yeah and our feed in brazil is very like textured like the only pellet is the pellet that's holding like either the probiotic or the vitamins and minerals but you see the oat you see the corn you see the barley yeah you know so i do like that too yeah yeah so so for um when we're in canada full-time i just feed i um put out like the equilix tubs which is just like a free-range supplement when they're on turnout and then they get um alfalfa and orchard grass kind of like free choice and then um then they have their forage and their salt, right? Like, what about you, Nancy? I feed pretty high fat, clean. Um, the feed I feed is actually based out of Australia. It's just straight coconut meal is what I feed them. And then I have a, there's like a vitamin, mineral, amino acid supplement that I add that's designed to go with it. Um, and then a gut supplement that I use on some horses for the most part though everything gets just the little bit of coconut meal salt and the vitamin mineral amino acid supplement i have 190 coconut trees on my property and i never thought that i could feed that to my horses well you're sitting on a gold mine shannon (laughs) or under a gold mine (laughs) i'm sitting here thinking that is genius it's actually, honestly, my horses oh, it is look so palatable. outstanding on it. Yeah. No, and it's so, because, you know, we go and pull it and we drink the coconut water and we, you know, why 
why did I not think of that? It's high fat. <laughs> it's high fat. <laughs> no, it's so many, like even my husband and my workers, they'll get the coconuts and drink the water out of them, you know? And we, we have this little thing that, I mean, it, they drink coconut water all the time. Like you go down well, the street. Well, it's supposed to be really good for hangovers, isn't it? <laughs> you go down the street, there's guys selling coconuts for the coconut water. And I'm sitting here thinking, why am I not bringing that back for my horses or even my cattle? Nancy, I, I don't I know why you. you're not doing that, Shannon. <laughs> I'm going to start. That is so cool. So yeah, it's honestly like I've been feeding it for, I don't know, eight months now, I guess. And yeah, I've been fairly thrilled with the results. It's allowed and me I'm to... And I'm going to ask my, my feed guy why they don't put coconut in the feed just to make sure there's not... Yeah. There's some reason because coconut is so plentiful in Brazil. It's crazy. It's everywhere. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty. Uh, yeah, it's honestly, it's made a great, it's made a great feed. It's actually, have you heard of the Renew Gold that they sell in the states? No, no, it's like a, it's a pelleted feed, I think. But the one of the main ingredients in it is coconut. I'll be darned. But yeah, it's high fat, high fiber. It's a good source of digestible protein. That's really well. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> so what do you think is the most important um, thing to have in your feeding routine? And, you know, for muscle development and recovery and everything, what's your go-to? Um, for my colts, I like to have them on, um, like, a high-fat feed, like, as a supplement. But I also just think, like, letting them eat is kind of the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. Lots of times people pull them off their food or, or they're, they're short on feed and that kind of underdevelops them. For my performance sources, I just... I try to keep it pretty simple because I think that anything um, too extra is sometimes harder on them to digest and then causes a whole nother thing of problems. But um, I have a liquid spray that is high in omegas and I try to keep them on that for recovery. And I think, I think that's kind of been what's the most successful for me. I tend to be kind of the same. I like to try to keep feeding them in front of them as much as possible um, the vitamin, mineral, amino acid supplement that I feed is probably the thing that I, I don't know that I could go without it now that I have it. Um, it's just everything that they need. So I'm not supplementing B vitamins and vitamin E and selenium and, uh, amino acids and lysine and this, like, I'm, I'm not adding 27 different scoops to my bucket now. It's just one scoop and their coconut meal and their basic needs are met. And I think also having, having such a balanced supplement, I've noticed a huge difference in their feet and in their coats and their hair growth. Um, it's something, it's something that I think is pretty underrated to be honest, is making sure that we're not, not so much that we need like a joint supplement per se, but if you are meeting all of their basic needs, mm -hmm. you, you won't, needs so much extra crap <laughs> I think is yeah is my take on it and it's sorry Shannon no, and and that's what I like about the Equilix tubs because I have a lot of horses in training and so I can put those in the t in the pens and they can eat exactly how much they need every day and they have hay to for forage with it and and it just saves me having to pack 10 pills. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, and everything both of you said is, is just, that's it. You know, for me, I really like the high fat. I really look for chelated minerals so that mm -hmm. they're absorbed. 
One thing that I think gets overlooked is dewormers and probiotics. You know, the horse has a horse is a little bit like a human, a little bit like a cow. So a lot of times if they're stressed, the pH changes in their digestive system and you kill off those microbes. So I'm a big believer in probiotics and prebiotics and dewormers. I remember I was in Brazil one time and I had dewormed my mare and I was brushing her and then I, she still had a worm. And I called my vet. I said, I don't know what's going on. I just dewormed her. He said, it's Shannon. It's tropical country. So we do use a lot of dewormers where I live. I see a big difference in that by a really scheduled deworming program and probiotics. And then exactly like you said, high fat, vitamins, minerals. If you meet their basic needs. Now we're talking about performance horses. We're not talking about mares and babies. If you meet their basic needs, they are fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's honestly the only horses that get supplements beyond that is like our good rodeo horses that are going hard. Like yeah. pretty much everything else, unless they have a specific problem happening, their basic needs are met. They have good feed in front of them. And, and, and that's even good. the girls, you know, like Stephanie here, she feeds a lot of alfalfa cubes. That's great. So you got to really make sure that you're feeding a good probiotic so that you're getting the maximum out of that forage mm -hmm. you're feeding. You Absolutely. Know. You guys are way more hardcore about the deworming, I think, than we are. I don't know how often you deworm, but we, she said she does it monthly. <laughs> we have frost, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard monthly, I was like, holy. Yeah. It's, mon it's monthly. That's yeah, crazy. It's really monthly. What do you do, Nancy? I do every three months. I usually do every three months, yeah. too. Yeah. Do you switch up your dewormers um, for what they'll kill depending on the season? Well, the idea behind that is they feel like the parasites build up resistance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it kind of takes hundreds and thousands of years for that to happen or a hundred years. I kind of believe that's a little bit, and I may get fried on this so nobody gets mad, but <laughs> I kind of think that's just a thing they do to get you to buy other dewormers. <laughs> so I, I give a dewormer that, I don't even know what's in it, but... I can't give you the name of the medicine. It's not just Ivamec. I do others. But it's, there's a specific type of dewormer. I want to say maybe it's fembendazole that actually helps to eliminate ticks. It helps to keep the ticks off. So I, I give that one to get rid of the, the worms, obviously. And then I give that to help them avoid ticks. Another thing we were talking about today in the clinic is I give levomasol. When I moved to Brazil, everyone was like, we give levomasol to improve the immunity. Levomasol is, for pigs and sheep, a heart dewormer. But that's not why they give it to their horses. But we had this conversation today about, like, why do horses in Brazil not bleed? Why do we not have so many bleeders like I'm seeing everywhere else? And part of me is like, hmm, maybe this levomasol, which is used to treat EPM as well, maybe some of this is some of, a, like, a lung worm issue. But so I give the same type of dewormer almost every month. But like you guys, I change it up about every three months to give something different. And then I also give the levomasol every month as well. So they get the paste dewormer, the one that helps with the ticks, which I do believe is fembendazole. And then I give Ivamec also every three months. And then sometimes some of the others that whatever I can find on sale. That's a true story. Whatever I find on sale, I give. But I really focus on the one that helps to keep ticks off the horses. And then I do give the levomasol with it. 
But I think the idea like, oh, you need to change dewormers. I think that's a little bit of a marketing ploy to get you to buy other kinds. Mm -hmm. What I think you need to focus on more is the life cycle of that worm, like which worm is active in the time that you're trying to kill it. Yeah, and that and so I I switch up the dewormer, but also in the cycle of what I'm trying to kill. And so we do quest when once it freezes, and then once it thaws, we do quest. And then on the other ones, we just do Ivamec because the climate's pretty much the same. I'm pretty much on the same page with that. Mm -hmm. Quest gets really expensive if you use it all the time. It's <laughs> yeah. like I said, I buy what's on sale. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, what are your thoughts on bits? What's your go-to bit? And thoughts on ports? Okay, well, my favorite bit is probably the flex bit. It's basically the simplicity bit with a little chain in the middle. Then my second favorite bit is what I call the quick response bit. Mind you, I am not reinventing the wheel. These bits all existed. I just kind of made some changes. I really have light hands and my horses are extremely light in the face and broke. So I can't have a heavy bit. Um, I don't like ports because I feel like they're designed for more maybe like reining horses and you, you don't get any lateral movement. So you just get this stoppy front end, head down type of thing. And I want my horses' noses to really be out and follow themselves and you just cannot get that with a port. And you can't get that with a long shank. But, you know, our the way we run and the way we train is a little different. But I really am a big fan of the, the whole line of simplicity bits. If, I, if you said you can only have one bit in your life, what would it be? It would probably be some form of the simplicity bit, which we call the flex bit on our line of bits. I don't really actually know what my favorite bit is called. I want it in a raffle. It's an Elliot. <laughs> And it, has, and it has flowers on it. <laughs> it's not from the South Country? It is from oh. the South Country raffle, but <laughs> I, I don't know what it's called. It's an Elliot with a three-piece mouthpiece, and it has like a slidey little shank thing on the side, and it has flowers on it. <laughs> that was a very high-tech but... answer. <laughs> <laughs> I but it honestly, it feels good on every horse. Yeah. So... That's the one I like. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I have maybe a little bit different response to that. I ride in the same mouthpiece on like 95% of the horses. And so I ride with a twisted wire and a cricket um, on Dave Elliott's mouthpiece. And it's split. It's a three-way also. Probably the same as yours. And But I'll start those colts in a snaffle and then go to a junior cow horse and then kind of bit them up from there. Um Kind of with Shannon on some of that is that sometimes those horses get too much bit and then they don't want to run into it and it kind of causes trouble. So that's why we start with the snaffle. And if they can handle themselves in a snaffle without dinking off, then, then that's what they get. And if they need more for balance or flexion or whatever, then that's what we go to. I do ride horses in a port and um, my port is broken so I find that I still get that lateral flexion, but um, Dave told me, and this is why we use this port bit on certain horses, is that if you set the port far enough back on the mouth, like you kind of have to set it high in the mouth, that the port will actually help prevent them from flipping their palate. 
And so when we have horses that want to flip their palate or be kind of weird with their mouth, I put that on them to run them in. Now, those same horses can get rodent a snaffle and everything else. But when they're doing like a medical cause, and I can just change that with a bit and not have to like... Well, and that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and I did do the, in the island, there was a girl and the bit did that. And she even asked me, could we not make a bit to help with that? And I, you know, another thing I forgot to say is we're not allowed to use ports in Brazil. Oh, yeah. You know, we can't even do it. So you just learn to not. Yeah. But with my particular hand, how I feel like I had an Ed Wright pretzel bit, which is a port, oh. which is broken. Yeah. But then... You know, now I've just gotten with a different type of style than what I used to ride. But you're right. And when the girl showed me that, and there was another horse at the clinic that had that, it really got me thinking about going back to the bit maker and saying, hey, let's really really sit down and think about horses with this problem and try to come up with a bit that gives them all of that. Yeah, and it was like, it, to, for, to make a competitive run on those horses that want to do that, I find it's just like a really quick, simple fix to like, to, for them to perform the best that they can. You know, and that's really interesting because I never have this problem in Brazil. I've never had a horse with this, with a displaced palate. Oh, really? Never, I've never seen one. I'm sure they're there, do not get me wrong. But I'm, I'm almost wondering if it's not because we are at such a high level, not that this is not a high level of competition, that's not my point. A good horse here is a good horse there. But I feel like if there's any little thing wrong there with the horse, it just gets, it just cannot compete, so they just discard it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just get the yeah. next one. And I don't think they give the chance to fix that horse. It, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I'm just knowing what I've seen with my eyes while I am there. Mm-hmm. But I've never heard of anybody talking about this in Brazil or... In fact, just here in Canada, I heard people talking. I know what it is, but I was like, man, I never thought of that because it's, it's never come across me before, mm-hmm. a horse with that problem. Very interesting. Yeah. Fun facts. I, I, skip, <laughs> I, skip the port, I skip the port part of the question. I, I do also like riding a port sometimes for some horses. Yeah. When, my, when my personal horse is getting strong, sometimes it... It's nice to give him a little come to Jesus meeting with a port, and he uh, gets yeah, yeah. <laughs> gets and back I, in his zone. <laughs> and the port that I use is totally if totally functions like um, like you were saying the pretzel bit is fixed on the sides. The one I use ha- still has a gag, and it still like it still moves. It's just that the centerpiece is different. The pretzel bit is my go-to for the come to Jesus. Yeah, it's a good bit. I did love that bit. I, I do like that bit. <laughs> you know, I the only reason, I, I used to use that bit a lot before I moved to Brazil. I loved the pretzel bit, yeah. but now I, I just can't. Mm-hmm. It's not allowed. Yeah. So Communist barrel racing. I have a question. In Brazil, are you allowed to use, like, like, cur- like are there certain curb strap restrictions? Of course. Yeah. We have all kinds of restrictions. So in Brazil, we cannot use a chain from side to side. We have to use two flat chains underneath, and it has to be connected with nylon or leather to the okay, bit. Yeah. Or you can use a string. A lot of guys just use a shoestring. But we can't use a chain. They can't have metal on metal. Mm-hmm. So okay. we can't do that. Yeah. And we have judges at every race. So as soon as you come out of the arena, you have to get off your horse, take your bridle off, every, including rodeos. Mm-hmm. You have to take your bridle off, show the bit to the judge, and then make sure there's no blood on it. Make sure it's a regulation bit. And, and then, you, you, then you can leave. And he makes sure there's no blood on the horse, on the legs, like where you kick it, like on the sides of the belly. You know, if a horse bleeds, you're disqualified. Okay. So 
So I think that's why. And I think, you know, you just get caught up in that, like, you just, in what you can and can't use, and then you just develop a style from mm-hmm. what you're allowed to use. Yeah. yeah, it's extremely regulated there. It's not necessarily a terrible thing, really. No, I mean, there's, not. I think there's pros and cons to it, really. Some of it might be a little bit extreme for what, you know, for what... It, it, helped, what we're used it helped to, me be, become a better horseman, really. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because I did use bigger bits. I used a bigger port. You know, like I did use ports. I did use the pretzel bit a lot. Yeah. I used the chain curb strap. And I had to just kind of rewire my thinking and, and really become a better horseman to compete with those guys. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't mean like what the things you've just discussed as being extreme, just from what I've listened to in the podcast that I've listened that you've done previously about like the, one of the things was like that touching them on the shoulder or whatever can get you disqualified and that I'm like, well, yeah, because in Brazil, <laughs> I, mean, I understand if you're whipping on them or whatever, but at the same time, I'm, well, it's the animal <laughs> rights people, yeah, you know, and, and Brazilians can be mean. So there's a reason probably somebody probably did something to cause that rule to come into effect. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> I'm assuming it has to do with a spur to the shoulder, if I had to guess. Oh, God, I can't even imagine being athletic enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a lot of animal rights in Brazil, really, really a lot. And so we have to be really careful there. We even, like, with the start of a race, when they're doing the prayer and national anthem, we're always reminded about, the welfare of the animal and mm-hmm. and things and to always be careful because they could shut us down you know mm-hmm. the animal rights people could shut us down so they're very cautious about what they're doing in front of the public there um so mostly for canada but where do you see the futurity world and just the whole industry going um in terms of like the prices and the business aspect of it Um, I, I think that what's happening in Canada right now is all positive. And anytime that you can get more events and bring in better quality horses and have a higher level of competition, and that does not take away from the divisional races. Like, I think that we still need to have a divisional race. Um, but when, when you allow for more money to be put up and you have these higher caliber of horses i think that's a good thing we were actually just talking about this on the way here to panoka that we're 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 very rapidly catching up to the u.s and our horse market prices are climbing because i and i mean also because we're getting better horses but because their horse market has climbed as well so it, it eventually trickles up here because so many people in the last five years have bred to better studs. Like there's more slick by designs. There's more dash to fame directs. There's more of just better bred barrel horses. And that is that alone is increasing the quality of the caliber that's here. Um, I think that's it. Well, no, like even for Brazil, you know, I'm, I've been selling horses back to the U.S., but the truth is I get more people from Canada asking me for horses. Mm-hmm. Sold a really nice horse to Canada, stud cold, 
And it's, it's, to me, it's really interesting. He is very nice. He's very nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's really cool to see the Canadians having more of an open mind than even the Americans. Yeah. You know, I get more Canadians reaching out to me about these bred horses than I do Americans, which is really cool. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I think it's great that, um, it allows an opportunity for people like myself and, um, it's not so isolated, like multiple barrel horse trainers can make a living in our, in our province of Alberta and BC is growing and Saskatchewan's growing. They're a little bit slow, but they're catching up too. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. And I think, I think it, I think what's really exciting about it too, is it it gives the opportunity for I mean, the competition to grow, but for all of us as trainers, like mm -hmm. for all of us, there are so many great trainers in Alberta and yeah. it gives so many of us the opportunity to grow and ride more great horses and actually kind of try to maybe make a living doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't see any problem with what's going on up here right now. And I admire Canadians because you're more open-minded, you're more willing. I see you guys like really trying to learn more. Like When I give clinics in the States, the people come and they ride and it's great and they learn, but it's really cool like like even to be here, like even for Nancy to come and watch me ride. That To me, that's more of a Brazilian thing. For example, in Brazil, after we ride... We go to the warm-up pen and all the trainers come and talk to each other and ride each other's horses. And, and you, I just feel like your mentality and being so open with your ideas and training and techniques is going to help you guys advance even further, even faster than what you think you will. I, I honestly think that that's one of the biggest things that helps you keep growing is to keep an open mind and like listen. I mean, honestly... Your ideas are a little bizarre sometimes. <laughs> I know. But I, but I learned a lot watching and just different ideas to take home and like, oh, I'm going to go home and try that on this horse. You and, know, like. Yeah, that's just it. I and, mean, you learn from everybody. I, I yeah. never stop learning too. I'm always watching those guys. I'm watching American videos. Exactly. And that's guys. same like Riley's been one that I've watched since I knew even heard her name i guess i haven't been barrel racing that long so <laughs> she's kind of an old veteran but, yeah yeah but she's been it's one that cool. i've watched and like i can send her the odd video or whatever and she'll tell me what she thinks and like i think that that's one of the great things about this about the trainers here in alberta is so many of them are so open-minded to help you and bounce ideas off of and, and and I think another thing and and you can probably relate to this Shannon too is that because we're getting so many more horses bred in Canada and not just the directs but just in general there's a bigger volume that we're riding more and so like I can make a barrel horse a lot faster than what I could like 15 years ago like now I'm like <clears throat> in and at, at one point and I'm like this is what it is <laughs> no and this yeah. is what this is what a lot of people don't understand about <clears throat> these fancy bloodlines they're fancy for a reason mm -hmm. because they're just easier to train yeah you know you get your result a lot faster than even with the grand get of these children yeah. or with a horse that's not bred to do it you know you're cutting reining bred horses not that those horses cannot do it but there's a reason these horses are famous and are expensive because you get the results faster, they're easier to train. It just makes your job as a trainer that much easier. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think it could have possibly been more night and day for me than going from my like 2D horse that was not bred to be a barrel horse to going to a friend saying, help me pick one that's going to be a winner. And she did. And then training that one and being like, why? <laughs> why did I do that for so long? <laughs> I is so much easier. <laughs> I have some neighbors at home and they just literally told me the same thing. And they're like, we're halter breaking this thing and it's better. <laughs> Seriously. No, it's really true. I mean, there, there's a difference and there's a reason they're expensive <laughs> because they just make your life better. Not all. Not all. Of Not all. <laughs> and, you know, as trainers... And let's say we buy our own horse. Let's say we have to buy our own horse. If we buy that fancier bred horse, that more, I call them designer horses, it's, e it's a lot easier to resell that animal for us. It doesn't mean we don't believe in the other horses because we do. Mm -hmm. But if, if we're going to have to invest our time in something, if you have that designer bred horse, the resale is so much faster mm -hmm. with even a less result. Like, let's say I have a horse that's not bred to be a bear horse. He could be a 1D horse. But if I take a designer red or trace Caesar dash to fame mm -hmm. and have even a little bit less of a result, I sell that horse for more money and even faster than I would the other horse. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So how, <laughs> when you get a horse in for training, how do you know when it's just not going to make the cut and how do you decide when to send it home or how to even tell the people, <laughs> the owners? I just tell them really bluntly, <laughs> but um, that's a rip the bandaid off. Um, but I give them three months, no matter what. So when every, when it, and lots of what I get in is like three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And so we put them through the steps for three months. And if the horse just cannot do it, then I call the owner and say, Hey, like, this horse needs another career or you need to try another trainer. And, and sometimes I will send one home, not because it's not good. Sometimes they just need to go to somebody else who's going to take them to that level. And that is just out of my control. Um, it's, Every horse interaction is like a, like a people interaction in my world. And so if I get along with that horse and it's happy to come see me every day, it can stay forever. But if it's like not wanting to be caught or like just not wanting to be with me, that's not a horse that I'm really interested in putting time into. I would agree wholeheartedly with all yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's just it is like, I think, I think in order to do a good job on them, you have to like them. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. there, there has to be some kind of a relationship yeah. with, with that specific horse. And if there's not, there's, there's just not yeah. like, and, and that's not saying that, um, that they're going to reach their full potential in three months. That's just saying that I feel like I can take this horse through my program to where it needs to get to. And my like like anything when you put them through the program you ha still at some point have to let that horse tell you where it's going to take you because you can like it you can it can be successful but that doesn't mean it's going to be like that elite athlete at the end of the day but for me as a trainer I still want to put out a good animal I think that's that's also something that I think needs to be taken into consideration is what is the owner's goal for that horse, right? Mm -hmm. Is it going to yeah. be a futurity horse or 
uh, high school rodeo horse or a 340 barrel horse? Like what, what is the expectation for the horse? Because if you don't expect it to be, you know, a 1D world beater or whatever, then yeah, by all means, I'll pattern it and, mm-hmm. yeah. and ride it and do my best on it kind of thing. But it's physical and mental and just straight up talent limitations can, mm-hmm. can play a very large role in what and, it's going to be. And I think that's one hard thing for people to hear is that their horse is limited. Yes. And Shannon then, was talking about this earlier while yeah. she was, you know, there's a <laughs> listening to this and I was nodding. There's a breeder in Brazil, and he became really good at taking his colts and sending them to the trainers that he knew would match those horses. Mm-hmm. So even as an owner, now I don't train outside horses anymore. For I'm blessed enough that I don't. I just train my own and then sell them. It took me a long time to get to this point, um, but he's very successful in that. In that and is that he gives the horse to the trainer that he knows will fit his particular horse. So even as you guys, not you as trainers, but the owners out there, you need to watch these trainers, watch them warm up, watch them. You know your horse better than anybody. So when you pick a trainer, other than maybe their credentials of what they've won or how they take care, you really need to try to do it like what this guy did and match your horse up with the trainer that you think will match it best. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of owners need to understand that we work our asses off to make these horses. And sometimes it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And we love animals. And a lot of times as trainers that we love animals, we, we really care about our customers. It's why I had to quit taking outside horses because it, you know, it broke my heart when it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And as owners, you really, really need to go in that. I know you go, you take your horse to these trainers, you take to Riley, you take to Nancy, and you have these huge expectations, and we want that for you, but sometimes it's it's a lot on our shoulders and it doesn't work out, and so well, I'm rambling here, but my point is, as owners, you need to take some responsibility too in knowing that it's an animal. We really do our best. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you really need to know your horse and take it to you think will be best, not even if it's because of your friend. Like Stephanie and Riley are friends, but let's say Stephanie knows that horse will fit Nancy better. Mm -hmm. So she just needs to send the horse to Nancy and explain that. Mm -hmm. And so I think owners need to do their research too and not throw all of that responsibility on us trainers. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. Okay, so have you trained a horse... (laughs) That you wished yeah. was your own and offered to buy, or was your most memorable? Creates two puddles. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Can we leave this question oh. till the end? <laughs> um, yes, I, I, I do not offer to buy my customer horses because, as a trainer, I cannot make money on my clients. um, my job is to make money for them. And so if I'm going to make money, it's, it's off of my own horse that I've gone and picked out on my own time. But yes, there has been horses that I have trained that have been, um, as good as the ones that I own. Hope that was and Nancy also thinks the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
I, I'm, I'm with Nancy. It's, it's hard to hold back tears. And if you know me, you know I don't really get attached to them. I have this little bit of military relationship with my horses because I know they have to be sold. But there was one that... So I had a partnership with Judd Little for a long time. I love Judd. And what he would do is send me his blown-up fraternity horses <laughs> to Italy when I lived in Italy. And he sent this mare. Her name was... Um, cash into the max and we called her max and i nobody he had the best riders ride her and nobody could get anything done with her in usa and i got her there in italy and her her trick was just don't touch her just absolutely don't touch her don't kick her don't touch her just do nothing and this merit loved me she looked for me i mean we were friends and and then my stupid ex-husband, I, was, I divorced him and went back to the States, and I tried to buy Max from Judd Little, but my ex-husband got involved and told Judd all these lies about me, and then he found a buyer for the horse in Italy, so Judd sold her to somebody else. And I remember going to Italy and seeing her in the stall. She got so happy to see me. And, and my stupid ex sold her to this mafia guy who ended up going to prison for murder. And to this day, she's still with the police in the police station. Aww. Yeah. I had a, I had a pretty awesome one that. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Isn't it hard? It's hard. Yeah. Because here's what you have to understand as people who are professional trainers, we harden our hearts for this. You know, we love the horses, but we know they're going to leave us. Well, yeah. I had, I had a very special one that I got to ride from. He came to live at my house in the fall of his two-year-old year. And I rode him until he was five. And then he came back to me this spring. And he got in a wreck and we lost him. So, yeah, he was... He was the one that I would have owned in a heartbeat. He actually is the reason I listed my own horse for sale, is I wanted to own him. Well, and this is what I think what happens is like <laughs> we don't get attached to horses like you, you owners do sometimes, that they become your pets. But when we get one, <laughs> it's back. Yeah. It's, it's big. Yeah. There, it's like, I don't know. I, I look at it like it wasn't my own horse, but those horses that that we get to build that bond with and train and we know that they belong to somebody else i look at them like i played i played rugby very competitively when i was younger and i look at it like losing one of my teammates like one of my very good friends yeah, yeah and, and sometimes these special horses aren't our best horse it's just there's something about them that grabs you it's that totally. energy totally and, yeah. and it, like I said, you know, I run a lot of horses through my barn. You guys run a lot. So you get, you build up that wall a little bit. Yep. That's, I honestly, I am very good at not getting attached but, to but any when, of them. But, but that when one. When there's that oh. one, I mean, it, it is like, literally like it's heartbreaking for us when that happens. Next. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard. Jeez. Oh, Okay, confirmation, heart, or mind. If you could only choose two, which ones and in what order? I only I think, need one. 
I think that's I think that's like that's like looking for a farrier that's cheap, fast, or quick, and you can only pick two. <laughs> Or, or cheap, faster. What's the other one? You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, cheap, cheap, fast, and good. <laughs> that's what I was looking for. <laughs> but that's just it. It's like to me. Uh, gosh, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. So I just want a horse with heart because yeah. a horse with heart will run with a crooked leg. It'll run with an abscess. It'll run with whatever. Um, if they have a mind to go with that heart, props to them. But um, you can kind of get through a lot with a, with a crazy and a unconfirmationally sound horse as long as they are willing to give you everything that they have. Yeah, what she said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Unfortunately, though, when we go to look at prospects or when I go to buy a, a horse you don't know if he has heart or mind. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I do look at confirmation. Now, what I pick out in a confirmation is not like what you would want in a halter horse. There's certain things I like in horses. So if you're asking me, like, if I have to go pick out a prospect, it's going to have to be confirmation in mind because we don't know if it has a heart. But by going off his bloodlines, we kind of have an idea. Mm-hmm. Now, if I already know the horse, I agree 100% with her. But unfortunately, sometimes we don't know until we start messing with them. Mm-hmm. That's just it. When, I, when I'm looking for a prospect, I am 110% looking for confirmation, like, without a doubt. But that's just it. If I can go and, and ride them and mm-hmm. pick, like, yeah. heart all day. I, uh, I have had four exceptionally nice horses that have, have won at a high professional level and not one of them had a straight leg on them. (laughs) (laughs) But like confirmationally, I I don't necessarily look at straight legs. (laughs) There's certain things I look at, you know, muscle wise, but I'm with you. I don't really, if they're not straight, I don't really care. Is that terrible? Should I say that a lot? But, you know, I I do agree with you, Shannon. I'd look for things too, a specific specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. What are your top three confirmational must-haves? Oh, I get to go first, Lee, because yeah. I talk too much. <laughs> um, I, like, I look for two things, and one is for a horse to have a nice flat line across from where it ties in all the way up across its back. And... Um, I also look for them to be even with their knees and their hocks. And usually by doing that they're a they're a lower hawked horse um one thing a cutter told me a long time ago to look for and and it's very true and actually all of my good horses that have that i've won on have done this is that if when you walk a horse in a straight line if it pulls its tail underneath of it that generally means it's going to want to be more hind indy and that it's got a nice low hawk to it and so that's one thing that i look for when i when i go buy colts is how they like i i have the strangest buying habits in the world like i'm like walk them 10 feet i get on them if they're rideable (laughs) ride them 10 feet and like yes or no but um i don't really look again like foot size or I prefer something with a little bit bigger bone but it's not a deal breaker for me I first and foremost look for one that's balanced second of all I would like them to be either level or functionally uphill 
So they're not, I, I would really rather not ride a horse that's built downhill. And I really, really like a thick gaskin on them. A gaskin is like, that's very important to me. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So the first thing I look at is the gaskin in the lower part of the, the butt muscle. Mm -hmm. You know, I want that gaskin in the lower part of the hip to be wider than the top part of the hip. Mm -hmm. And then just like Riley said, usually when they're like that, they already carry their tail a little bit lower and tend to be a little bit lower hocked. Mm -hmm. um, I also like horses with their front feet close together because <laughs> they have a faster crossover. Like if you yeah. really look at Dash to Fames, they have this big wide chest, but their front feet <laughs> almost touch. <laughs> So I actually look for, just like what these girls said, I want the, the big hip on the lower part, not the top, top part, and I want their front feet close together. And usually when they're like that, they're, they're just like Nancy said, they tend to be a little more uphill build. Mm -hmm. Makes our job easier. Okay, what is your mental game? And um, do you have a mentor or books you read? Mantra. No, there's one more part. Anyway, talk about your mental game. <laughs> what is your support system? Um, it's God. I mean, we all read books. We all watch videos. We all have family. But when it comes down to it, when I'm down and out, the first place I go to is God. Me too. I go to Tim Grover. <laughs> I... Uh... <laughs> I was like, this is such a Nancy question. Anyways, <laughs> um, I also think, and I'm sure that Nancy can agree with that, just being in the rodeo world that you don't, you never stand alone at when something bad has happened to you. There's always someone there, and that doesn't mean that they're going to offer you anything. Sometimes they're just going to be there and hang out and crack terrible jokes and help you through that situation. Um, for, for, for me, when uh, things go bad, um, and like I, I, I trust in God, um, but I also know that no matter like it's part of um it's part of anything with with horses like yeah. you're you're gonna have bad days and you're gonna have good days and the and the bad days really suck and the good days are really good well yeah and that's what i mean like there's so many times you you just sit in your truck and you just cry or in your barn and and so, you know, you, you let all that emotion out. Like when I say God, so, you, you know, you kind of let all that emotion out on him. And then, then you kind of, you know, recoup. And then you can go to your friends or your spouse or mm -hmm. your parents or whatever. But for me, I think because maybe I lost my family very young, mm -hmm. I always first kind of went to God and just kind of let all that emotion out. And then, then kind of went. And I, I watched a lot of, you know, you are what you do, for example, like my social media feed is full of positivness mm -hmm. and Tubby Nugget. <laughs> He's the most positive nugget on the planet. <laughs> um, no, seriously, every time I'm a little stressed, I watch videos of this little, little dude and he's so cute. But if you, you are what you think about, I talk about this in the clinics, you, you are what you think about most, you do what you think about most, so I never focus on my bad runs, I never watch my bad runs. Do I work on my problems? Yes. 
but I never watch something bad because then it gets in your brain. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if you try to be positive and stay positive, your social media feed is a great example of who you are. Mm -hmm. So if you open up my TikTok, if you open up my Instagram or my Facebook, it's full of positive quotes, positive videos, self-motivation. There's, there's never really anything negative on my social media, but I think because it's, it's what I search for, it's what I'm after. So if you find yourself one of these people that kind of dwells on your bad runs, dwells on bad situations, your situation will stay at that level. So if you just change your mindset and just think about the good and start watching good things, then your whole energy becomes good. But when I'm really down and out and you just have that just breakdown, that to me, that's always with God because also I don't need to take that negative energy to my husband. Now, my husband is there for me. If I cry, he's sad for me. But I kind of do that on my own with, with even with my horses or with my dog. And then you just kind of... Whew, you take a deep breath and you know that tomorrow will be a better day. Mm -hmm. And, and I also find that uh, I do that too, but, um, and I spend time with my cats, but uh, <laughs> yeah, too. yeah. But, um, if I like as, aside from, you know, the bad days and whatever, if I have a roadblock, I can, I've been fortunate enough <laughs> to compete against some of the best barrel racers to ever live. And I'm also fortunate enough to call those people my friends. And so when I have something going on, I can call them and be like, hey, this is what's going on. And, and it's like, you know, they, they do it so much. And, and not that I don't barrel race a lot too, but they do it so much at such an elite level that they'll tell me something in 10 seconds and it like solves most of my problems <laughs> or they'll tell me you know like it, it's like um Brittany Posey told me I was at a rodeo down south and she's like shorten your bonnet an inch and a half well my horse went to winning like crazy you know and and sometimes it's you as a competitor you have to be open-minded but you also have to be able to to know who to take that advice from and and like I said, um, I I think we're very fortunate to be part of the barrel racing and rodeo community because, you know, um, I can resonate with you, Nancy, that you the your losses because I've had those too. But um, there's there's probably a hundred people at a three hundred person event that have had that too. And so when something does happen, those people are there. That's, these two are a lot deeper than I am, <laughs> obviously. I really do go to Tim Grover for everything. <laughs> Tim Grover has the best books. He has the best podcast. He has the best Instagram. I'm going to light my this fire. <laughs> um, he honestly, like he was uh, Michael Jordan's coach and Kobe Bryant's coach. And that guy just makes you like, Nothing can stop you. You just want to go and get Man, to work. Man, I want to find. I don't even know who that is. I need He's to find so out and great. listen to that. He's so Tim great. Grover. Yeah. G-R-O-V-E-R for yeah. our listeners yeah. and me. If you look up the School of Greatness podcast, episode number 1111 and 1112, they are both Tim Grover and they are both outstanding. <laughs> I'm going to look for that. I kind of I kind of oh, have to fly the more. Oh, you have yeah. to leave. Okay. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming Thank and for, for having all your me. wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to see you, Shannon.
Thanks, Riley. That was awesome. Yeah. At what point do you know when it's time to uh, cut ties with a horse, even if it is the only horse available to you at the moment? Or what would be a next step if you're really struggling with a certain horse? I think I'm the perfect person to answer this because been there. For me, what I did is I decided what my goals were and I looked at it. I tried to look at it from an outside view, but what I actually did is I went and I rode with somebody that I trusted and whose opinion that I valued very highly. And I just asked her, do you think that, you know, these are my goals, ABC, do you think that this horse is going to help me reach those goals? And she was very straightforward with me. And she said, like, you've done a great job on this horse and what he is. But is he ever going to be a pro horse? No. No, he's not. So then I went home and I cried for like two months. And then I sold him. And I bought my gray horse. And he was the best thing. Like, he, without a doubt, it was the best choice. I loved the other one with all my heart. But... At the end of the day, it was like, do I want to set my goals aside so I can keep this specific horse that I love, or do I want to let him go on and make somebody else very happy? And, you know, trust trust that that's his journey, and try out, try out the next path. You know what I mean? No, and, and, and I agree with her. You just need to decide what it is you want. I spoke about that today. Every horse is limited. No matter how much I practice soccer, I will never be David Beckham. Okay, that's an analogy I use. I can shoot basketballs all day. I'll never be Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. So you have to set goals of yourself realistically as a rider and goals of your horse realistically. And what I see... With a lot of people, usually when people come to me to buy a horse, it's because they've been through that path and it's just, it just isn't working and they're frustrated and they're, they're ready to, just to try something out of the box, which is like you said, some of my stuff is out of the box. Mm-hmm. And I think that oof, a lot of owners and riders are limited themselves and they... And when I give clinics all the time, my horse does this, my horse does this, but what are you doing as a rider? Mm-hmm. And I agree a thousand percent with what Nancy said. You have to set a goal. Do I want to make my circuit finals? Do I want to go to the NFR? Do I just want to be the Big Bang champion? You know, you, you set the goals and then you have to work towards that goal with your horse. If you want to say, I want to make the circuit finals, okay, you got a horse that's pretty good, maybe not there, then you need to work on yourself too. You need to go to the gym. You need to eat right. You need to work out. You need to read the books, listen to the, this guy she's talking about. <laughs> it's, it's a process. It's not just about having a good horse. And like we talk about in my clinic, you know, your horses are not fit. Your horses are not fit. Well, what about us? You know, it's a partnership. Mm-hmm. And if, for example, me, like I want to take this horse to the BFA, you know, I'm trying to work out. I'm trying to make myself stronger. I'm trying to make my mental game better. You need to sit down with not just your horse's trainer or your coach, but you, you really need to, if you really want to be successful and you have the money for one horse and the horse you have isn't getting the goal you want, you change that horse, but you need to change yourself at the same time. It is a partnership. 
And you can expect that horse to be at a top level if you yourself are physically and mentally not at that level either. So what she said is perfect. You set a goal and then you try to get people around you to help you reach that goal. But it's not just your horse. It's yourself too. I would agree. It's definitely not just your horse. Um, Having said that though, for me, buying my next one, I couldn't go out and buy a finished horse. I could not do that. I went out, I bought a two-year-old. I took three years off of competing altogether. I went and rode with different trainers. I, and, and I did. I worked on myself. Mm-hmm. But I took time away from, from going fast to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I had to... But that's just it. You worked on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You said, this is the goal I want. I went and bought the prospect exactly. that I could afford, that I thought could get me there. And, and that's just it, right? So that's just it, is I don't, I don't think... I don't think you necessarily have to go. I mean, you can go buy a finished one. That's great. If, if that's something that's accessible to you, it was not for me. Um, but that's just it is I, I took that time and I learned, I worked on myself and I, I did, I, I sat at home and sulked for three, you know, like I, I didn't like not going barrel racing. (laughs) It wasn't great, but in the end it was well worth it because Horse A was never going to get me to where horse B. Well, has and taken like me. and like what you're talking about buying a finished horse. A lot of times, like okay, even my horses that I sell, they go on to be successful, but they're not finished horses because my style is not your style. And oh, what's really exactly. cool is these girls come and get these horses that are started well, mm-hmm. and then they mold their styles together. Yeah, absolutely. And then I feel like that's why they're having such a success because a lot of times if an amateur, we call them amateur riders in Brazil, not that you guys are amateurs, but people that are not professional trainers, we call them amateur riders. So a lot of times an amateur will try to buy this finished horse and it doesn't work out because when you get that finished horse, he's really set in his ways Mm -hmm. and you really have to adapt more to him. Where in my program, I feel like it's been successful because these girls are coming buying three-year-old horses that still need to be finished out, but have a really great foundation. Mm-hmm. So they grow together, they meld together, they develop their own style together. Mm-hmm. So like what you did there, I mean, that is exactly what someone needs to do depending on their goal. Nancy did it right. She got rid of the horse that she knew couldn't get her where she wanted. She bought the best horse she could afford, and then she worked on herself to get to that goal, and then she was successful. I, I will also add, like, the way you said it, there's, you know, it's, you only have access to one horse. I have one horse and I have a two-year-old that I that I bought last fall or I'm still paying her off if we're being honest here. But but that's just it. I believe, I mean, I, I see so many people that they have a trailer load of really nice horses and that is fantastic if you have the time and the money to have a trailer load of really nice horses. But for myself... I ride some outside horses. So for myself, for me to have one horse, I need to be able to afford to have his vet work done, have his teeth done, pay his entry fees, get him rode every day. Like my goal is to never let him go more than two days without being rode. And I, I, if I'm splitting that time between two or three horses, I'm going to have two or three pretty fit horses instead of one really fit, really well taken care of horse. So I think like there's two ways of looking at that as well. Like it's, it is not a bad thing to have one horse. And 
I think we're in such a community, like this community is so pro have is, you know, have a whole pasture full of them and that's great. But sometimes it's just not feasible. Like this is not a cheap game to play. <laughs> no. And if you have other responsibilities, like a full-time job, a family, exactly, you know, and it's really better to just have one horse and focus on that yeah. horse. And answer for the 90% of the public who are working moms or yep. single moms that one horse is feasible absolutely oh, welcome and that's like I mean I mean that wholeheartedly yeah I mean see and I think ooh. for me that's another another part of my mental game I guess is something that I remind myself often and having been through this journey I mean I've had Trooper since he was a two-year-old and he's nine now and then my young one, my two-year-old, is, you know, just kind of coming into it. I'm just in the process of starting her. But what I remind myself with these horses is to learn to love the process. And I think that that is such a, like, that is what keeps me sane and craving every ride. Like, I look forward to getting on my horse tomorrow morning and warming him up or even just exercising no, or whatever. Is yeah, me I, too. I have learned to just, like... I love throwing the saddle on that sucker and cleaning his feet out and petting on him and brushing him. And I love it when he's being a jackass as we try to go for a long trot. Like, but you know what I mean? Is learning to love those days and their, their personalities and just the bad runs and the good runs and all of it, because it's, what else would you rather be doing? No, like, like I said, we're so privileged just to even totally. have to be here and do this. That's and just it go to the little jackpot or the NFR or the BFA. It doesn't matter. Exactly. I mean, I've seen, I was telling this today, I've seen such poorness in the world. I've literally been all over the world. I know what poor is. I know what need is. Mm -hmm. And just to be here is such a privilege. We have no idea how that's privileged exactly we are. It. Exactly it. I honestly think that that's what makes us like, makes me want to keep getting up every morning is like... But I don't think. But that. I don't think any person should have any shame in thinking they only need one horse. I oh, think I think not. that is awesome. Well, Shannon brought me back to reality and told me to get rid of one of my horses and just focus on the other one. And already, I'm just like, wow, I can really enjoy her now because I'm not worried about splitting my time up. Like, oh, I only have an hour to ride, so I have to quickly throw the saddles on and do like 20 minutes on each. Like, I can actually think about enjoying her now. It makes it so yeah. much more relaxing. Yeah. Seriously. Like, yeah. I can, <laughs> that's just it. It's like when I don't have a lineup of my own to ride, mm -hmm. I can ride the other people's. And then I finish the day out on my sweet little angel puff and yeah. everything is just, but just takes so much pressure off. Like, it makes it so you can actually focus on the horse you're on and not like, oh, it's someone doing back at the trailer, you know, no, like, and like for racing me, to get on the next one and try yeah, to get Yeah, like, we were talking about leg wraps, like, in Brazil, I mean, I have to, I had to wrap all my horse's legs, saddle all my horses, because a lot of my horses are in the same age division, so you don't have a lot of time to change saddles or warm them up, and then, so they're standing there with their saddles, with their wraps on, you ride them, you tie them back up, you grab the next one. And now I'm having time to get my horse, take the saddle off, wash him, braid the mane. You don't know how many times I've had to go with no mane braided, you know, just got to go, got to go. Now I'm, I'm really enjoying my horses. 
And like I said, this is a true story. In the last six months, I have had more fun than I have in the last six years with just taking two horses to the show. I only have a three-horse trailer, and when it is full, I'm like, oh, this is a lot. I need help. I don't know how some of these people do it with five or six or eight. It's crazy. Five or six. It's madness. Shannon, it's madness, okay? They take 20 to 30 to 40 head. Yeah, but you guys have help. <laughs> I've been, yeah, no I've been in barrel races where Sydney Jr. has 40 head. Desio has 30. But he has help. <laughs> but you know what? Um, but he never stops. He literally has like a horse every drag. Can you imagine? I mean, yeah, he has the help, but it's still very exhausting. Yeah, I mean, that's the same way there. But at the same time, it's still exhausting for them. Yeah, especially no. in 40 degree heat and 35 degree it, heat it makes it a lot more like work and a lot less like fun that's for sure but you know even when i was taking three I w- when i went down to two so that this horse i would take a, a divider out so he would fit better i am loving it <laughs> i am i believe it i have a question sure what do you guys feel is your biggest hurdle to get over to get you where you want you guys as as riders as rider owners and winter i really should have <laughs> yeah winter <laughs> i get how you feel like feeling like you belong there you know i get my ass kicked in brazil daily you know so even like when i come here and you guys watch me it's like oh i can't believe they're watching me you know <laughs> but um what you're feeling we feel that too we go through the same emotions you go through we often wonder do we belong here are we good enough? Is our horse ready enough? Is the owner going to be happy with the result? Am I going to be happy with the result? So when you're at a race and you see even these professional people, we're all really all on the same level. We don't, I don't judge anybody that's at the race. Whether you're a champion or a champion of the 5D, we all belong there. So you shouldn't worry about that. That is something you should take off of your plate. And if you don't believe in yourself, don't worry, we all go through that too. We all make mistakes, we all fall off. Um, so that part, you should really erase that from your system. The time thing, the money thing, the winter thing, those are real issues, but feeling like you belong there or believing in yourself, you should really, really wipe that off the plate because you do, and you should. Like we fought tooth and nail because up here in Canada, one of the big things that pays Like, because of our winters and all of that, it's very unlikely that you will, that half of the trainers will come out um, with the paternity year with that smoking 1D horse. And I've been at top of the 1D, and the amount of mental pressure that you put on yourself um, to stay up there uh, sucks. Like, it's that mindset. And, and yet you're always craving that next one D horse or whatever. But it's kind of like crack, really. It is. Yes, it is an addiction. And and one of those things is like surround yourself uh, with with a po- with a positive attitude. Like I, I see it on Facebook a lot, and I'm like seriously, like people are like, oh yeah, like barrel races are bitches, and like I'm I'm summarizing, but it's like. I never see that at jackpots because it's the group I'm around. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I was at a jackpot the other day. This girl was having trouble getting her horse in. And 
she was stressed out, her horse was stressed out, I'm like, you need help? I'm like, and she declined it, okay, fine. She's still struggling, so I just walked up my horse right beside her and chatted with her, and her horse went in, uh, just in the warm-up area, and then she asked after, she's like, can you stay with me to help me get in later? I'm like, yeah, sure. Because again, it's good for my colt to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And like we sat at the back and we chatted, and like that's the thing, positive energy, it, it also, positive attracts a positive. Mm-hmm. So if you're around those people and all of that, like the way I see it is if, like it doesn't matter if you nailed all three barrels, fell off, fucked off, whatever. Like if you can pick up one positive thing, or at least have fun. Getting bucked off is not fun, but it, it's happened to quite a few of us. All of us. <laughs> if you haven't fallen off in a barrel race, like, I'm a really barrel racer. You know what? <laughs> I've never fallen off in a barrel race, and I have so much anxiety over it. Like, one day it's I haven't fallen off, but I've had horses fall with me. I haven't even had uh. that happen. Oh, man. Oh, mine was when oh, I was 10 years old at ADRA finals. It was fun. Uh-huh. My horse set up for third, and I kept on going. No, I, I feel mine's coming, and it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> but, no, I think, I don't know, that's, that's just it. It's like that feeling of being good enough or whatever. I think that's probably the thing I appreciate most about the horse that I have, is he has given me the confidence to pull up in literally the shittiest old truck and trailer at Every barrel, <laughs> but I don't care. That is what's cool about Brazil like, is nobody really has anything stupid. Some guys have some really fancy stuff that really nobody cares. What no, and that that's just it. Is like last year, I'll never forget the the Calgary qualifier in Innisfail, and I won't forget it because it went very well for me. I parked right beside Jimmy Smith, and she looked at me and she's like, "That's a sweet ring. I wish I was driving that right now." Because she had this great big thing, and it was about to start pouring rain. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll be out of your way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's just it. It's like nobody, most, almost nobody cares. You know what I mean? Yeah. About what you drive or what kind of saddle you have or what kind of jeans you're wearing or how great or shitty your horse is. I think a lot of that's just in your own mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Don't care. Exactly. No. Like that's just it. Yeah, out of 400 or 1,000 barrel racers or whatever, nobody's going to remember your run. No. no. And I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes I remember that Nancy's truck needs help starting every time, but eh, whatever. <laughs> Builds character. <laughs> Builds character. Well, that was good, I think. Do you have anything else to add, either of you? Trying? Yeah, please. <laughs> no, that's not it. <laughs> Please. I'll talk to Steph, but she's cried so much on this podcast, you probably won't cut it out. I was not prepared for that. No. And then you started to cry and made me cry. Oh, shit. I'm really not a crier either. That was just it. I was, like, so caught up. No, but... Oh. But it's true what I said. Like, you know, we girls, like us, that, you know, go through a lot of horses, we you do kind of put up a wall. You still care about each individual Mm -hmm, horse. But there are those ones that really connect totally. with you. Totally. Mm-hmm. You know, like a dog. So, but thank you for having us, Stephanie. Yeah, Morgan thanks for doing artists. this. And maybe we'll be able to do it again one day. Yeah, hopefully we do it in Brazil. That would be fun. Okay, <laughs> we can do that. I agree. I agree. Me too. <laughs>